Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 33. I'm looking forward to sharing with you this guest, Victor Yako, who's got a bit of a different feel than some of the other guests. Back in episode 19, I was chatting with Arel Moody about likability, so check that one out if you haven't already. And he said, oh boy, it was funny how you just kept drilling into me for more tips and practices and, and tactics and things to do to increase likability. And I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of how I like to roll. He's like, yeah, some podcasters, all they care about is my personal story and journey and where I've been. I was like... Oh yeah, well, I like a little bit of that, but more so tactics. But what is it you, listener, prefer? You want to hear more story, personal, relatability stuff, or more principles, tactics, wisdom, knowledge, you know, stuff to go do uh, from these wise folks. So trying to dial into that right balance and let me know. Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. Shoot me an email with your feedback on this and every other point to make things more on point. So that's much appreciated. So here, Victor, we are going to hear a good bit of his personal story. And that's one of the first things we're going to chat through is the story of, of him and alcohol and getting out of alcoholism and implications he's discovered along the way as a designer when it comes to uh, forming effective habits and, and breaking ineffective ones. Secondly, uh, the power of teaming up with others to achieve your ambitions. And thirdly, how to use a design approach to construct and reach your career goals. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, things mentioned, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash app. Three, three. And if you want these takeaways faster, you can find that in the gold nugget email list. So just go ahead and sign up there while you're there at awesomeatyourjob.com. Quick bit about Victor. Victor is a Philadelphia-based research director, author, and speaker. He received his PhD from The Ohio State University, where he studied communication and psychology. Victor regularly writes and speaks on the application of psychology to design and addressing the design and tech culture of promoting alcohol use. He has written for A-List Apart, Smashing Magazine, UX Booth, User Experience Magazine, and many more. He's the author of Design for the Mind, a book from Manning Publications on the application of principles of psychology to design. Here's Victor. Victor, thanks so much for appearing here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me today. Now, I know you do a ton of interesting sort of design consultation and work with different clients. Could you maybe open us up by, by sharing a story of a design that was just wild, shocking, mind-blowing, funny? Well, so one example that I like to give when I talk about designing for psychology, which is sort of the area that I focus on, is... Not necessarily a design itself that was shocking, but the underlying idea that a high-level telecommunications executive had in a meeting one day was they, they have a payment portal. So imagine anything like your cell phone bill where you would go online and manage your cell phone account and make a payment, whatever. Well, well the executive, the thing that he had stuck in his mind was that social media and being social is the be all and end all when it comes to product design. And so we have to make this a social experience. And in my mind, when you say something like that, you have to really understand why you want to make something social. But his whole motivation and his mantra was he wanted this online payment portal to be quote, the Facebook of telecommunications. Management. <laughs> and 
So I like to use that line in meetings when I talk about designing for social influence and social identity because there really can't be a Facebook of telecommunications management. People aren't going to like the fact that you paid your cell phone bill. (laughs) People aren't going to share the fact that you have 700,000 free minutes. So these kind of experiences... To me, it really highlights how people grab onto one idea, but they don't understand the underlying nature. Facebook is good at what they do because their platform facilitates social relationships. Phone bills, while they might facilitate different types of social relationships, (laughs) don't lend themselves to the same experiences that Facebook do. And there's other analogies, you know, like with uh, the banking world and financial technology, they're very curious to understand the future of digital banking. And and so I like to make a joke about attaching Twitter to your bank account and like sending out a tweet, like hashtag, I just, I'm broke. I just overdrew my account. Like why would somebody want the option of tweeting about their account balance? (laughs) Well, we're going in a lot of fun directions here. Uh, So I want to hear a little about your story. I I think that this episode is going to be, feel a little bit different than some of the others because it's going to be a bit personal. I'm going to hear a bit about your perspective in uh, encountering you know alcoholism and sobriety and then hearing what are some some lessons some takeaways associated with what forms habits and how can we design because design's your jam kind of mm-hmm. good good work routines structures activities to get us kind of cruising in a good way with with solid habits that propel being awesome at our jobs and and avoiding dumb habits, which make us, you know, less energized or or productive and and more distracted. So I'll just kind of give it over to you. Can you tell us a bit of of your story uh, when it comes to the alcohol? Sure, Pete. Thanks. And thanks for setting it it all up. I'm really happy to be on the show and to share my experiences with you and your listeners, because I hope that it can provide people who either find themselves in a situation that I was and am in or know others in a similar situation can offer support and really You and I were speaking before the episode that it's about a lot more than just alcohol, but it's about all the different habits and negative behaviors we sort of pick up as we go along in life that end up uh, making it harder for us to be awesome at our jobs, be awesome at our lives, and and accomplish the things we want. So my story is really that I tell people I've always abused alcohol, and that's whether I drink once a month or whether I drink five nights a week. The problem that I've had and I didn't realize it at the time, was that I don't have an off button. So once I start drinking, my Mm. off button is becoming physically unable to continue drinking. So whether when I was young, I mean, when I was like in high school, and then when I was in college, my off button was throwing up. And Mm. I would often do that after a six pack or 10 beers or something where you can feel foolish. You're probably going to be hungover the next day, at least in the morning. And then you go on with your life. But for whatever reason, when I entered, and so drinking wasn't a huge part of my life at that time either. You can drink, throw up, and then move on and, and accomplish a lot of other things. Like I was able to earn my PhD. I was able to start a family. I was able to do the things that I thought I wanted to do. And alcohol was playing more of a minor role. But as I got into my later 20s and into my 30s, sort of, seemingly for no reason at all to me, my tolerance became really high. And I was able to drink 10, 15 more Mm. beers at a time. 
And I started doing it and I started incorporating it into a routine. So I would first, I started doing it every Friday because it was my reward for finishing up the week. And then I would start to do it every Friday and Saturday because I would do something like go for a long run on Saturday. So certainly I earned it. And the hangovers weren't going along with it anymore. But what was starting to happen was drinking until I blacked out. And so I wouldn't have really clear or any memories of why I was in certain situations. And all of the horrible things that you attach to people who say they drink until they black out, you can also attach to me. I sent really mean texts and emails to people. I would wake up and I would have to apologize for breaking things, apologizing for ruining someone's party, apologize for a whole array of things that in my younger days, I never, ever thought I would be that person. Mm. And of course, when you're drinking and I was starting to do this multiple times a week till you black out, it's very expensive. So I was spending a lot of money on it. And then I was spending a lot of money replacing things that I would break when I was in a drunken stupor. And I was spending a lot of money on counseling because I was honestly taking my life to this dark and horrible place. And one of my closest companions was my fiance and I was taking her down this spiral with me and we were trying to make our relationship work. And so while I refused to acknowledge and blame myself for the drinking and, and take that out of the equation, my uh, attempt at solving the problem was instead to go to counseling, both couples counseling and then eventually individual counseling. And that's really where I came to the realization through the help of the counselors that the drinking was the issue. I was the issue. I didn't need counseling to make my relationship with my fiance better, I needed to stop drinking and then start working on the relationship. And so I came to that realization through on two consecutive days, two different counselors telling me, I really don't think I can work with you unless you agree to stop drinking while we're working on your issues. And it sort of, it sent a light bulb off in my head, which was these people who don't know me, but know my story and they don't know each other are telling me the same exact thing, which is, I can't help you if you don't stop drinking, but on the other side of the coin, I can help you if you do stop drinking. And I felt like my life was just in a spot where it was worth it. I wanted to be successful in my personal life. I wanted to be successful in my professional life. I never thought I would be the person who was breaking things and and being a blackout drunk. I never thought that I would be the person who would have a label like alcoholic or alcohol abuser. And all these things were very strange to wake up and try to embrace. And at the same time, I had set up my life around the drinking. And so it was super scary to think about. It wasn't as simple as, okay, stop drinking. To me, that sounded like stop living, stop having the life that you have. My life was focused on waking up, thinking about drinking, then starting to drink. And even the career that I had chosen, while having access to alcohol played no role in me choosing that career, design and technology and the startup culture that you hear people referencing is very focused on promoting the use of alcohol. And so something that I've been able to do since becoming sober is go on podcasts like yours and talk at conferences and write articles about the need to just raise awareness that we're not all cookie cutter in our ability to consume and be around alcohol, and particularly in the design and tech world, that we need to do more to create inclusive environments where, yes, there might be alcohol, but not everybody feels pressured to drink or not everybody feels like the spotlight will shine down on them if they order a seltzer water 
lime instead of something with hard liquor in it. And so that sort of catches you up to where I am today and just working hard on both my personal and professional life and, and staying sober. I've got over two years of sobriety now. And in that time, I've really accomplished a lot of the goals that I had for myself when I was drinking, like writing a book and like getting a large promotion at work and like starting my fiance has now morphed into my wife and we have a child together. And, you know, I was able to repair the damage and the trust. And so for me, it feels like the real mark of, of success at this point is to continue trying to make, make the world, I guess, a little bit more accepting, a little easier for those who I know around me are probably going through something similar or who just might have other situations where I can help make them feel more included. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Thank you. And, and congratulations. And, and there are, but there are numerous elements in there that I could kind of, you know, connect to, relate to. And, and I'm thinking about how it's, it's really handy in, in your story. Well, one, you, you were able to put together a pattern. Oh, two separate people who did not know each other each told me something about a topic. Ah, it's me. <laughs> and, and so I think that could happen when, when we do seek out feedback from others to, to get a perspective on something. And when you do start to see those patterns, the more you ask and, and reflect from folks. I also was intrigued by, you said, you, you drank until you were physically unable to, to drink again. And I think I've done that at night. They are not the same thing, but there is a little bit of a, of a connection. At night, there were times in which I continued watching Netflix <laughs> until I was physically unable to continue watching Netflix. Yes. It's like I've conked out now. And Binge watching <laughs> is a term because it's a real thing where you gorge yourself on watching TV. It's, it's exactly, it's very similar, I, I would say. You know, it might not have the immediate physical negative impacts. You might not be in a separate state of, of like an altered state of thinking, but at the same time, you have put yourself in this situation where you're doing something that's not necessarily positive for you after a certain point and you're overindulging. Indeed. And, and then there's all kinds of bad news about, you know, blue light and melatonin and bad sleep associated with watching things late into the evening. And then that has all kinds of kind of spillover implications for being sleepy at work and, and all that. But I want to hear then, so, so you're successful in, in two years sober. Again, congratulations. And Thank you. your expertise is design. So tell us, how did you design a way out? What were some of you, the approaches and, and mindsets and, and things you did to, to overcome? So that's a great question. And I feel like I did, in reflecting, I did have some real structure around how I first encountered sobriety. It didn't feel that way. When I first jumped into it, it felt like just I was taking a plunge and I, I knew I wasn't going to be successful. I knew I didn't have it in me to accomplish it. But now I realize that you can design and whether it's sobriety or whether it's something around binge watching TV or overeating or just any type of distraction where it's become so routine. So, I mean, a real example is for me when I was drunk, I would always that sort of right before you pass out period think, well, tomorrow I'm going to start writing a book. And, hmm. and I never got to that tomorrow because I was always drinking or drunk. And it's the same thing if you're binge watching TV and you're thinking, well, you know, tomorrow I'll get started with that side project that, that's going to make my career in a better place. 
So I feel strongly the first component that any program where you need to change a large behavior is that you need support and you need to sort of put yourself around other people that have done that. And for me, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous or AA, but it was at the advice of the counselors. And eventually I stopped going. I don't currently go. And I know that there are some people who have strong opinions one way or the other. So whether it's AA or, or something else, the, the piece that I feel like was worked for me was that it put me in a setting where other people were experiencing the same thing and they were all at different stages. So I could look at somebody who had been sober for 15 years and hear them say, yes, this is hard. This is hard as hell. It's still hard, but you can do it because at day one, day two, and all the way up for the first 60 days or so, you wake up every morning thinking, you know, what's going to be my excuse to go back to drinking? And so putting yourself in a setting where other people understand what you're going through, or even if they don't understand your exact situation, but they're aware that you're trying to change this behavior and they can offer you support, I think that's really important. You have your own power to sort of change that. And I think that self-help is a really positive uh, category when it comes to reading and listening to podcasts and radio shows. And so I advocate that really strongly. And then setting goals. That was something that was critical for my success and staying successful was I always had small and longer term goals. And I mean, I still do. And I had to set small goals like writing an article or like just writing a blog post for the company that I work for. And then that started to snowball into creating a longer term goal, writing a book. And now maybe I'll do that again or something different. Speaking about psychology and design, speaking about dealing with alcohol abuse and productivity. Lovely. So, and, and that, that is interesting. And so I'd like to talk a bit. I think there's really also some overlaps there when it comes to, you know, overcoming or breaking an addiction or bad habit and also establishing uh, good habits. So when you talk about setting goals and having support, I mean, that reminds me of my second book, Team Up. It wasn't a huge seller. (laughs) If any listener wants one, I could probably send you one. (laughs) Team Up, Becoming Accountable to Your Dreams. And I I was proud of it, and it was meaningful. It was all about how folks can support one another by, if you establish your goals, you share that with each other, you get a good sense of of support and encouragement and and, and butt-kicking when you need it, and, and it just propels you forward in, in some, all kinds of powerful ways. So I'm a huge advocate for accountability groups for whether you're trying to do more exercise or prayer or building a good habit at, at your workplace or conducting initiative, wherever it be. So, so tell us then, when it comes to psychology and design, what, what are some means of designing structures or environments to get going in establishing good habits, things you want to start doing? Yeah, that's a a great point or question that a lot of what we use on a regular basis has this underlying psychology that it's tapping into and whether or not the designers specifically went out. So for example, Facebook taps into our desire to create this social identity. I can't speak on behalf of Mark Zuckerberg, whether he was using social identity theory, which is a psychological theory of how people interact socially when he created that experience. But what it plays out and does is it sort of acknowledges the psychological principles that exist um, when you take a higher level look at why it's successful. And so one way of looking at it is 
whether it's using a digital design or using a pencil, we want people to use the thing we create. And that's all about mm-hmm. behavior and behavioral psychology. And there's a lot of literature out there about why people engage in behaviors and how we can get them to either change their behaviors or support those behaviors. And, and one specific theory that I write about is called the theory of planned behavior. And it just talks about decisions that people make when they have information available and they understand what the outcomes are going to be, that they're usually, it's a combination of of three different factors is going to determine whether or not somebody engages in a behavior. So let's say uses your website to make a payment online or purchase something through Amazon. And one thing is going to be their behavioral, their beliefs about the outcome of that behavior. So do people have positive or negative beliefs about using Amazon? And how can you influence that or using your website? How can you influence their beliefs around whether or not the outcome of using your website is positive? So is it things like presenting them with information that shows how reliable your website might be or how many other people have used it to accomplish a task or how much money they're going to be saving based on using your website to purchase an item over another website. Or if you, you know, maybe you're not selling something, but you're providing information. Well, why is this information something that somebody should need? How are you presenting it in a way that comes across as valid and trustworthy? So that's looking at everything from the aesthetics of your design and how pleasing it is to how readable and how understandable you're communicating to people. So that's one component of what leads to people making a decision around using something or not. And another huge component is, do people consider the behavior to be a social norm? And Mm. so if it's something like Amazon's sort of a low-hanging fruit when it comes to examples because most people are familiar with it and most people have used it, So let's say, you know, you aren't violating social norms if you say, I just bought something on Amazon. But let's say you have a new website and you're competing with Amazon. You need to shift then the conversation around who is using your product and and why to show people that, oh, other people that I either admire or relate to or want to be like are using this product to accomplish the task so that they have what's considered to be a social norm around using your product. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Again, you can use uh, things like rating systems or displaying. If you, some websites will pop up. Um, I was recently booking some travel and the travel website that I was using while I was using it uh, was, I travel to fun places like Columbus, Ohio. Oh yeah. So uh, while I was on there, it, it comes up with this little pop-up that says, you know, 500 other people today are looking for flights to Columbus. And that's supposed to do two things. That's supposed to tap into a sense of urgency for me, which would be like, oh, no, if 500 other people are looking for flights, I want to get the best deal, so I better buy now. But then it's also supposed to show me, oh, hey, 500 other people are literally using this same tool to book their flight, this must be a very socially acceptable way of booking a flight. So I'm feeling a lot more comfortable now about using this website to do it. I see. So it's sort of like trying to tap into the the social piece and, and getting people to really believe that using your website or reading your books is a social norm among people that they consider themselves to be like. And then the third piece for planned behavior is well, called control. And it's really... Do people believe that 
they're in control of the outcome of what's going to happen when they use their product, your product. So part of it can be that your product makes people feel more in control of a situation. So thinking to a tra- the travel website example, does the travel website make me feel more in control because it aggregates a whole bunch of different airlines into one search engine and shows me their prices versus I have to go to 15 different airline websites and create a spreadsheet to try to track the different prices of flights and the mm-hmm. different times. So by showing me that, oh, hey, we're aggregating all this information and presenting it to you in an easy-to-digest way, they're trying to make me feel more in control of the situation, and that should then tap into my, hey, when I use website X, I have more control over my travel, and oh, look, not only can I book a flight, but I can book a hotel and a car on the same site. Now I'm in full control, and I don't ever have to leave the comfort of this one web property. So travel is probably an easy example as well, but are there other ways where you can show people how using your product, whether or not you're selling them something, actually puts them or gives them a greater sense of control of an outcome? Control has multiple levels, and you can also show people that using your product has ultimately led to the best decision for them. And that can be things like displaying information at the end that says, you know, you saved X versus using another website, or you've got access to 700 more articles on this specific topic by using this database versus another database. In terms of, it's really just showing people that when you've used a product, when you're on a website, when you're using something that's designed specifically to give them greater control over their situation, how you're doing that. Don't be indirect. Be very blunt about what you've created is good and, and surface that information so that people can say, I'm going to keep using your website or I'm going to keep using your smartphone application because I believe it gives me greater control over whatever the topic that your product is about is related. Have you given some thought for how you know these particular design principles associated with uh, you know websites and, and marketing experiences apply to designing your own behavioral changes? Oh yeah, absolutely. Going to those, the theory of planned behavior actually comes out of psychological literature that was funded from healthcare providers and like the Center for Disease Control in trying to look at how we can insert opportunities for people to do things like stopping smoking Mm. and and other kind of health-related behaviors. So when you think about it from not even a digital perspective, but just like, yeah, designing your own sobriety, what is my behavior belief around the behavior of drinking? Well, when I was actively abusing alcohol, my belief was this is something that I need to do. This is something that leads to a better outcome for me. When I'm drinking, I'm more creative. I'm happier. And so I had to shift those beliefs. And that's not an easy thing to do. Shifting your belief is probably one of the hardest things to get people to do. And so how do I start to believe things like not buying alcohol, not drinking, are actually going to lead to positive outcomes in my life. And how do I put myself in situations where I can start to realize that? And again, I think that's where the support really came into play, which was hearing other people's stories and knowing that the the stress I was going through around not drinking 
was ultimately something that could be overcome and that better things would happen as long as I stuck with it. And then that also contributed to the shift in the social norm, which is when I was drinking, everybody around me was drinking. And I still feel like that in a way, which is drinking is definitely a part of our culture. And it's something that we encounter on a daily basis, different advertising and promotions around why people should drink. But when you start to go to support meetings and you start to meet people who have decided that sobriety is a part of their life, then you also start to shift your social norm around what people who uh, don't drink do and why that can be a positive experience. And then control is really like, yeah, are you in control of your choice to drink or not drink? And what can you do to make yourself feel more in control of that decision? So is it don't put yourself in situations where you're around drinking, uh, don't ever have alcohol in the house, that kind of thing. Very good. Thank you. Well, so you tell me, before we shift gears to the fast faves, is there anything else you want to make sure you, you put out there with regard to you know, habit making or habit breaking? Well, one of the biggest things is just it doesn't happen overnight. And whether you're trying to quit drinking or quit smoking, or you're just trying to add five minutes of time every day for exercise or writing, you really need to stick with it for a longer period of time than just a few days. And if you're not successful the first time, try to pull back and understand why and what you can do the next time you try to change your habit to make it more likely to be successful. And there's a lot of little tips from psychology that you can try to incorporate. And some of those are covered in my book. And a lot of them exist in the psychological literature. And they're, they're sometimes hard to understand, but they are out there. Okay. And, and a favorite study or piece of research? Something that I feel like comes up often, and we didn't discuss on this call, but is very relevant in terms of the content of my book. And one of my favorite chapters that I wrote about is a study from 1979 on prospect theory. And it's actually really relevant still today. And it's by two researchers in economics called uh, Kahneman and Tversky are their uh -huh. last names. And, and they really look at how people make decisions when they don't have all the information or what they call risky decisions. And their conclusion is that people don't make great decisions. They use a lot of mental shortcuts called heuristics. Mm -hmm. And you can really use heuristics to your advantage, either in design or in everyday life. And that would be a whole other topic of conversation that we could talk about for hours because there's 20 or 30 heuristics that researchers have identified but a great place to start around that is Kahneman and Tversky's 1979 article in the journal Economica. I, I cannot pronounce mm -hmm. the name of the journal. And how about a favorite book? A favorite book? Well, one that I read recently that uh, is not brand new by any stretch is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And what he talks about in that is how we sort of define success and how people become successful through thousands and thousands of hours of practice. But also one of the messages I take away from reading the book is that success is very much dependent on societal factors and that as a society, we can do more to help people become successful. And so it's a, it's a nice reminder that we all play a role in creating success, both for ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. and, and how about a favorite tool, whether that's uh a website or hardware or software, stuff that you find pretty handy? Sure. So something that I've been using lately 
at the workplace is Slack. And for whatever reason, Slack has been the one instant messaging tool that's really stuck where I've worked. And over the past three years or so, we've probably tried five or six different things and, and Slack was what hit the nail on the head. So Okay. And how about a favorite habit, uh, a personal practice of yours that's been very effective? All right. Well, the one thing I do that I have been doing on a daily basis for well over a year, I really wish I could remember where I read it initially because I'd like to give credit to the person whose idea it was. But I read a blog, like a quick little post about how you can make yourself better or experience more success. And the person's uh, philosophy was you need to do three things a day to put yourself out there. And whether that's asking three people to be a new connection on LinkedIn or pitching three new places to write an article or three new podcasts to appear on, I've been doing that for well over a year. And and if you turn around that number, three a day is very small, but that's over a thousand new things you've tried to do over the course of a year. And even if only 10% of those come through, that's a hundred new opportunities or a hundred new connections or a hundred new potential things that will keep you moving forward towards your goals in life. So, you know, some days I do a lot more than others, but, but I'm always writing emails. I'm always writing new articles. I'm always trying to generate three new things a day. Oh, cool. And so, and how about the best way to find you if folks want to learn more and get in touch? Well, I'm very easily found using my name. And so on Twitter, which I tweet somewhat, I'm at Victor Yako, and that's V-I-C-T-O-R-Y-O-C-C-O. And if you ever want to send me an email, I respond to personal emails because I think it's something that it's nice when people reach out. And when I've written some of the articles that I've written around, especially around alcohol, I've had quite a few people reach out to me and I try to respond to everybody individually. And it's victoryako at gmail.com, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y-O-C-C-O. Then also my personal website is victoryako.com. And yeah, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, just look for Victor Yako as well. Gladly connect with anybody. Oh, got it all. And and how about a, a favorite, a call to action or parting challenge for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Sure, I would say look at something that you currently feel like is a distraction, and take ten days to go completely without that. Just cleanse yourself from whatever it is. If it's binge watching Netflix, if it's laying on the couch thinking about the fact that you'd like to get started with a new project. Force yourself for 10 straight days not to engage in that distraction. And then take a look at whether or not you've managed to start filling that time up with productivity. And I would challenge you to do that because that's really what happened to me is I would do that. I would do a 10-day cleanse of what you feel like is your current distraction and and see what you start to fill that time with and, and see if that might truly lead you to pursuing a passion and becoming more awesome at what it is you do. Oh, lovely. Well, Victor, thanks so much. This has been a ton of fun and I wish you much luck with the the book and and all the other things that you're going after here. Thank you, Pete. And if you don't mind, I'll give you a code that you can put up on your uh, page for listeners of this show and it'll allow them to get a discount of 39% off the book if they should choose to purchase it through my publisher. Oh, sure. Discounts are good. Yes, thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for having me today, Pete. I've enjoyed talking. Oh, me too. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Victor there. And again, love your perspective feedback on, do you like the style where we get to more in-depth on the, the personal stories of the guests? Shoot me a note at pete at awesomeatyourjob.com and check out the show notes, transcripts, things mentioned and linked over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep33. Thanks and hope to catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 